Amen. What a blessing to be able to sing together and to worship the Lord and humble ourselves before Him. And to do so in a way that we recognize the trials and troubles and difficulties that other people, brothers and sisters in Christ in this world, are facing. Jesus would say at the end of his upper room discourse, in this world you will have tribulation. But to take heart, to take heart, he has overcome the world. We find ourselves continuing in this portion of the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 14. We're looking at verses 15 to 31 this morning. You could find that on page 901 in the Bible. Uh, beneath the chair in front of you. Uh, we will just remind ourselves quickly as, as you're turning there that this is the, the end of the, our Lord's life. He's about to be betrayed, and then he's about to be crucified. And so this is his farewell instruction to his disciples. And so let's begin reading in verse 15 of chapter 14. The word of God reads, and our Lord Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in, the, in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. 
And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we could come and worship you in peace and in safety, God. God, please help us to not take this moment for granted. God, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us through the word of your Son and help us to know you more and better, Lord, and encourage our hearts, Lord, so that we do not fear, so that our hearts are not troubled. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at the many problems in the world, when we look at the many problems that Christians in particular have faced from the days of Jesus and the things that Jesus faced to the days of the disciples and the apostles and the early church and the things that they faced, and all the way down to us, we see that there has been no shortage of difficulties. There's been no shortage of trials. There's been no shortage of tribulations. And Jesus warned of all this and even said that all of this would be the case. But even so, he said to take heart. He said to be encouraged. He said to not let your hearts be troubled. He said to not be afraid. What reason is there for all of this? How is it when, when temptations to discourage us and trouble us and cause us fear literally abound around us and around the world, how is it that we can do what Jesus says to take heart, to be encouraged, to not be afraid? The disciples are facing two gigantic and terrifying problems in our text. They've been following Jesus. They've left everything. They've been considered fools by many. They've been rejected by their own people. They've been treated as if they're following a false Christ. They've been put out of their synagogues. They've joined this small movement of people following Jesus. And they're following Jesus. And Jesus is headed to his death. To follow Jesus is dangerous and could mean their death as well. They've seen Jesus' authoritative teaching, heard his authoritative teaching, seen his miracles. They've come to believe that he is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And they traveled with him and learned with him and served with him for three years. But over that time, they began to hear Jesus speak about his death and to speak about his hour that was coming, and to speak about being lifted up, and to speak about offering his life as the only way that the world would have life. And that moment has come. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And after that, Jesus will leave them and go to the Father. These are the two giant issues that they face. Jesus is going to the cross, 
And after that, Jesus is going to the Father. Given the world is in the state that it's in, how will they not be troubled? How will they not be afraid? And I think Jesus' answer that he would want them to know in this text is because they are not alone. They're not alone. It's just what Dennis mentioned. God is with them. I think that we can learn much from how Jesus encouraged and prepared his disciples to deal with his impending death and also his leaving them to go to the Father. And I believe that by looking at it, it will, it will help us to remain encouraged and faithful to Jesus until he comes again, despite the trials and tribulations, oppositions, persecutions, sufferings, and even death that we will face. So three questions will guide us through our time this morning. Let's begin with the first one. What reasons did the disciples have to remain encouraged and faithful to Jesus despite his impending death? The answer to that is that they knew what to do. They knew who they had with them, and they knew what was next. Let's take these one at a time. First, they knew what to do. Jesus has told his disciples as he, from the time when he's washing her feet, to the conversations after that, to the conversation that we arrive at here, he has told them what to do so that they know. If Jesus were going away and Jesus didn't make it clear to them what they were to do, that would be a huge issue for discouragement. Jesus has left us and we have no clue what we're supposed to do. But Jesus doesn't leave them in that situation. So just to remind ourselves of what Jesus had communicated to them, we look in chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So what's the first thing they need to do that they, Jesus said to them and that they know? They know they need to believe in God and keep on believing. But also in chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again in verse 21, that whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And back in chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what do the disciples do when Jesus is arrested? What do the disciples do when Jesus goes through a fake trial? What do they do when Jesus is falsely accused? What do they do when Jesus is beaten and mocked? What do they do when they put Jesus to death, when they crucify him? They do what he told them to do. Believe in him. Love him. Obey his commands. And his commands, in particular, is for the disciples to love one another so that the rest of the world can know that they are Jesus' disciples. And so that's one reason that I think the disciples have re reason to, be re uh, to remain encouraged and faithful to Jesus despite his coming death. They know what they need to do. But then secondly, we also see that Jesus gives them even more encouragement to be faithful by telling them who they had with them. We see this in verse 17, that Jesus begins to speak to them about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says to his disciples that you know him. Be encouraged. You know him, and he dwells with you. 
So when Jesus is taken away from them, when he is going through the arrest and the trial and the betrayal and the cross, the disciples are not alone. They have the Holy Spirit of God with them. And so they should be encouraged. No matter how dark the next, uh, and difficult the next three days will get and will be, they have the Helper. They have the Holy Spirit. He is with them. And so they knew what to do, and they knew that who they had with them. I think that's great reason to be encouraged. But third, they also knew what was next. And I just love this about Jesus. He's a good shepherd who leads his sheep step by step. And he tells them what the next thing, what, what is going to happen next, so they can know, and so that they can trust him, and so that they can believe in him. And so what did Jesus say was about to happen next? And if we jump down to verse 31, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. So what's going to happen next? In a short time from when Jesus is right there speaking to them, he will not speak with them anymore because Satan is coming for him and he will be put to death. Jesus will go on in verse 18 and say that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Orphans are those who are without parents. Previously, Jesus had called them little children in chapter 13, verse 33. How would the little children become orphaned? By the death of Christ. That's why he could not speak with them for but a little while. But Jesus tells them what's going to happen next. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And there's a lot of confusion, in, I think, uh, in regards to thinking about what is Jesus talking about when he's speaking about his coming, when he's speaking about his manifesting, and, and things like that. Uh, and I think that what Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, I think that he is referring to his physical resurrection appearances to the disciples. That he will be raised from the dead, and that he will appear to them, and that they will see him. In fact, Jesus says this as we keep going on, uh, right after he mentions not leaving them as orphans, but coming to them. Jesus says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And so uh, commentators disagree on, on, is this talking about, you know, the disciples seeing Jesus by the power of the Spirit after Jesus is gone? Or some, is this, so in other words, is this a literal sight? Is the world literally not seeing Jesus, but the disciples are literally seeing Jesus? Or is this some spiritual sight by the Holy Spirit that the disciples will have that the world doesn't have? And I think that Jesus is, in this verse, speaking about a coming to them physically, bodily. And so the sight, I believe, is physical sight. It's physical vision. It's an actual, actual little while. Jesus says, a little while and the world will see me no more. Why will the world see Jesus no more? Because he'll be put in the tomb, and they will never see him again until he comes in glory on the last day and in judgment. And so Jesus speaking here, the world will see him no more, but he also says that the disciples will see him. 
And I think, again, I think this is actual real sight. Uh, when we look at John chapter 20, we see Jesus uh, appear to his disciples. And it says that when they saw the Lord, they rejoiced and were glad. And so uh, going on, we, we, we could see in, in, in verse, uh, or, or let me back up as well. Jesus, Jesus says in after verse 19, or in verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then notice what he says here. Because I live, you also will live. Next time they see Jesus, where are they seeing Jesus? They're seeing him alive. They're seeing him raised from the dead. They're seeing in, in, in the, him and his resurrection body. And his resurrection life will be the source and proof of their own resurrection life. Jesus goes on in verse 20 and says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Something significant in, in life-altering is about to happen, and it'll happen, and when it happens, you will know better than ever that I am in the Father and you in me, and I in you. What will convince the disciples of this unity that they have with Christ and with the Father? I think it's just what he's been talking about in these verses. When he comes to them, and when they see him on the day of his resurrection. I find it interesting that that day is, uh, is actually used of the day that Jesus appears to them. If you look at uh, John chapter 20, uh, 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, that's when Jesus appeared to them. And then later in John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And so I think that that's the day he's talking about. I think it's the day he's talking about because it's called that day. I think it's the day he's talking about because it's a day that's only a little while away, about four days away. It's a day that Jesus promised to come to the disciples. And in chapter 20, it says Jesus came and stood among the disciples. And it's a day where they saw Jesus. It says the disciples saw him and they rejoiced or were glad. And it's also a day that would convince them, I think, better than ever that all that Jesus said was true. Everything he taught about the Father and himself and his death and his resurrection and forgiveness of sins, all of it is true. Everything he taught about restoration, everything he taught about reconciliation, everything that he said is certain and verifiably true because he has kept his word and he has raised from the dead and he has come to them and they've seen him and they have heard him. They heard him say, peace be with you when he appeared to them in chapter 20. And he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And it says that, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so if I could just kind of summarize what's happening here at a big picture level. The Son has always dwelt in perfect unity with the Father and in the Father. They share the same divine nature. The Son's union with the Father is a union of nature, while He is distinct in person. And their perfect nature provides the perfect loving union. That is a sense in which 
Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. But then, in order for us to be in the Son, how is that possible? That's made possible by the fact that the Father so loved the world, the Father who created the world through his Son and by the Spirit, and the, the human, human people that he made who rebelled against him and who sinned against him, instead of destroying them all, he said, I'm going to send my Son to come and to save them and to pay for their sins and to reconcile them to me. And so the son who always existed with the father put on a human nature. He became incarnate. He put on human flesh, lived a perfect life, laid down his life to pay for our sins and provide for our forgiveness. And through his death and by faith in him, we're saved and reconciled to God. And by the power of the spirit, we are made holy and we are brought into perfect union with the son. And by being brought into perfect union with the son, we are brought into perfect union with the father. And all of that is irrefutably demonstrated in the resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now you know, now you know that I am in the Father. The Father is in me and I in you. It's amazing. This is what's next. This is what the disciples have to look forward to. And so Jesus going on in verses 21 to 24, I think, continues to speak about this. Look at what he says. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What is this manifesting himself to him? Is this, is this his physical appearance to them? Or is this something that he's doing by the spirit later after he's gone? I think he's still talking here about the physical appearing. Uh, we'll see why. Judas, not as scary, it says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him and said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you heard is not mine, but the father's who sent me. What is this manifestation? Well, when we look at John chapter 21, the Apostle John describes Jesus' resurrection appearances as revelations. In John 21, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. And he revealed himself in this way. And then at the end of John chapter 21, John writes that this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So in all those resurrection appearances, who is Jesus appearing to? Disciples, not the world. And he's keeping his promise. And he comes to them and he manifests himself and reveals himself to them. Uh, the Apostle Peter, this is a great passage. Turn to Acts 10 real quick. In Acts 10, verse 36 to 43, Peter says this exact same thing. And he's preaching to uh, Cornelius, this is, by the way, Peter's preaching. Uh, this will be years after the death and resurrection of Christ, during the early church time after Pentecost. But he's going, uh, and he, he comes to a, a Gentile God-fearer's house, Cornelius, and, and is, is asked to preach the gospel, essentially. Tell us everything that the Lord sent you to preach to us. And, and so in Acts chapter 10, verse, uh, beginning in verse 34, Peter says, says that he opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, 
preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Pay close attention, listen. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What an amazing statement. There's a lot there. But I I bring that up primarily to show that this, this appearing was an appearing to the disciples who were loving Jesus, believing in Jesus, obeying Jesus, and waiting for what Jesus was going to do next, which was Jesus coming to them and appearing to them and revealing himself to them and even eating and drinking with them, according to John chapter 20, and even showing them his hands and his side and letting them put their hands and in, in, in to touch him and to see and to know and to believe all of these things. What an encouraging promise for Jesus to give to the disciples. Yes, they're going to have to deal with his dying, but Jesus promises his resurrection. He promises his appearances, and so they have great reason to believe, to love, to obey, and to remain faithful, even with Jesus' impending death. But this then leads to another issue. After the joy of Jesus' resurrection comes the sorrow that Jesus is going to ascend to the Father and go to the Father's house and leave these disciples. And so what reason would the disciples have to remain encouraged and faithful to Jesus despite his going away to the Father's house? This is our second question. The disciples are going to face a whole new set of difficulties, a whole new set of trials, a whole new set of circumstances that will be incredibly hard for them, and they're going to have to face it all without their teacher right there physically by their side. How are they going to do that? How can they remain encouraged and faithful despite that? Well, again, they knew what to do. They knew what to do. In verse 15, we see Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is what they do. Just as they did before, so they would do when, they, when, they, when he went to his death, so they would do when he ascends to the Father. They will believe, they will obey, they will love, they will keep his commandments. But Jesus also mentions to them that he is going to send them. Or at least he, he hints at this in John 13, verse 20. He says that whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Later in John chapter 20, when he appears to them, he says that as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Uh, and in John 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
So the disciples are going to do the same stuff that the son did. They're going to have a ministry of authoritative teaching and also authoritative, powerful, miraculous working. And it's going to lead to the building of the church. The founding of the church is going to lead to the, the gospel going out to the nations. It's going to lead to them being faithful witnesses even to their death. They know what to do. But they can't do any of that in their own strength. How in, the world are, how in the world are you going to do the things that Jesus did? How are you going to do greater things than Jesus did on your own power? There's no way you're going to do that. How are you going to go and, and, and in the face of death be faithful to preach the gospel and be willing to lose your life? How are you going to go and do all the things that the apostles do in the book of Acts? They could do none of that on their own. None of it at all. If it were not for what Jesus, who Jesus promised to send them. They needed to know who they would have in them. And this we see Jesus promising the Holy Spirit for the disciples, for the apostles. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. As Jesus is saying that's before his cross, the disciples are assured that they have the Holy Spirit with them. But Jesus also promises something amazing is about to happen, that they will not only have the Spirit with them, but they will have the Spirit in them. When Jesus would come and appear to them, it says that he, he, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in Luke, the same uh, resurrect, what I believe is the same resurrection appearance, he says for them to wait until Jesus sends the promised Holy Spirit for them to wait in Jerusalem till they are clothed with power from on high, and then they will be his witnesses and to go out and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They could do none of that without the Holy Spirit. If they know who they have in them, they can remain greatly encouraged. They're sent on an impossible mission to go into darkness to preach the light and to see people escape from the snare of Satan and turn to God and be saved and rescued and freed. They cannot do that in their own strength or in their own power. Good thing Jesus sends them the Holy Spirit and promises it to them. But the disciples know who they have in them, and it's why they're not afraid. It's why they're not discouraged. It's why they do all the things that they do in the book of Acts. Jesus here is promising that the disciples are going to receive another helper. And the word another here indicates another of the same kind. They're going to receive another personal divine helper to come to them. Uh, there's, there's heretical different groups out there that deny that the Holy Spirit is a person. They'll say it's just a, a power or an it or it's just God's force or, or whatever. But here we see this Holy Spirit is described as another helper. Just as Jesus was a helper, the Holy Spirit is described as another helper of the same kind. Jesus is a helper who is fully divine and who is a divine person. And so we have the same with the Holy Spirit. The difference is, is that the Son was incarnate while the Holy Spirit would not be incarnate, which Kind of hence the name Holy Spirit, right? Uh, so the Spirit would come and take residence in us. 
And I just love this because don't you realize the Father sends the best gifts? What's the best things in your life? It's the Son and the Spirit whom the Father gave both of you to. And through and by the Son and through the Spirit, you've come to know and worship and praise the Father. And so by having one, you have all three, and you can't have one alone, and you can't isolate them, and you can't separate them. To know one is to know them all. To accept the one is to accept them all. To have them is to have God's powers, to have God's presence. What a promise. What a gift. You see, that all-powerful spirit who hovered over the waters at creation that, that all-powerful spirit that came upon Moses and the judges and kings and prophets and supernaturally enabled all their successes, that mighty hand of God who worked val- valiantly, who crushed enemies and brought deliverance would come personally and dwell internally, taking up residence in the apostles to furnish them with power from on high to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. Incredible. This promised Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will be with you forever. Somebody say Forever forever with you forever what a promise what a delight what a joy no goodbyes thank you lord and he will be their power for their mission not by power nor by might but by my spirit says the lord i think the fact here that the spirit will dwell in believers indicates special working of the Spirit, his, 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 in, his indwelling work, taking up residence, I think, in the believer, carries ideas of believers being now the temple of God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and in the New Testament, we have God dwelling in the flesh of Jesus. And after the Son has ascended back to the Father, after the resurrection and glorification of Jesus, it is now the people who follow Jesus who have been made the new local place where God resides. They've been made the temple. They've been made the place where God's presence dwells. They've become the place where God manifests his name. If people want to know the one true God, they must come to Christians. They must come to us because we are the people. We are the temple. We are those who have the Holy Spirit. We are those who preach the word of God. We are, those, uh, we are the place where people can come and see effectual prayers uh, prayed and answered. We are the place that people must come to hear and receive forgiveness of sins. All this by the power and gift of the indwelling spirit. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 that Part of the amazing work that the Spirit has done is he has saved Jews and also Gentiles. He's brought them together in one body. He's made Gentiles fellow citizens and saints with the members uh, and members in the household of God. And he says that that is all, that all of that built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter calls you living stones. 
And each one of you that is saved is like a little, a little adding on to this, this, this temple where God dwells. All this is done by the Spirit. And so the disciples know who they have in them. They do not need to fear. They do not need to be afraid. This mission is not one they're going alone or on their own strength. They have a promised helper. But Jesus has more to say about this helper in verse 25 and 26. He says, I spoke these things I have spoken to you while I was still with you, but the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So not only would the disciples experience the Spirit dwelling in them, but then they would experience the special teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Son taught them, so the Spirit also would teach them and lead them into all the truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what does the Holy Spirit do as he teaches people? He teaches them to love Jesus. He teaches them to understand who Jesus is. He reveals Jesus. He declares Jesus. He makes Jesus' words known, and then he makes Jesus' person and work known to us and believed on in our hearts. We could do none of that without the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, who is from the truth, who is the Son, and who leads us back to the truth. <laughs> if, if someone says that the Holy Spirit is leading them, to a different person than Christ, <laughs> to obey some commands that are contradictory to Christ, you can be certain that that is the spirit of the Antichrist, not the spirit of God. Because the spirit of God preaches Christ. He makes known Christ. And, you know, he, he has no original content of his own. It's Christ's teaching and words that he's revealing. And so that's what he does do you find a person around you who believes in Christ, who professes to love Christ, who's walking in obedience to Christ's commands, maybe not perfectly, but who genuinely from their heart has trusted in Christ and who's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? That person could not do that apart from the spirit of God. That is evidence of the spirit of God's working and indwelling in that person and his teaching ministry. Uh, the, the, the apostles would be sent by Jesus, empowered by his spirit, and they would preach publicly, they would preach privately, and then they would also have a, a, a ministry of, of, of correspondence where they would teach the churches through written letters. We have in our New Testaments the products of those who were taught by the Holy Spirit all the things that Jesus said and brought to their mind brought to their remembrance all the things that Jesus taught them. Aren't you glad that when the disciples sat down to write an authoritative instruction to us, to leave for us, which we still have, that the Spirit was teaching them. The Spirit of truth was teaching them. So they, they could not produce error. They could not get these things wrong. And so our New Testaments are the deposit. Both, they are dual testimony of the apostles and of the Holy Spirit of the true things of Jesus Christ. And these are the things that we believe. These are the things that the Spirit teaches us. These are the things that we know and must know if we are to be saved. And the Spirit does that work. What a blessing. What a joy. The disciples would go out. They would not be troubled that Jesus was leaving. They would not be afraid because they would have the Spirit in them. But also, Jesus tells them that what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? 
when we see in verse 27 to, to, to 28, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So one of the reasons why the disciples should not be bummed when Jesus goes to the Father is because Jesus is saying, do you realize who I'm going to? If you loved me, wouldn't you be rejoice with me? Like, that, I'm going back to the Father. And, and then he says something here that we have to spend a little bit of time on. Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. What is, what is Jesus saying here when he says the Father is greater than I? This is a favorite passage of Jehovah's Witnesses and other heretical groups who desire to show that Jesus is not fully God. They say, how could, how could Jesus be God if he says that the Father is greater than I? And that's a great question. That's a great question. But as we think about that question, let's think, we have to think about that question in the context of John. And the first verse of the Gospel of John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So from the very first verse of the whole Gospel of John, we see a unity in regards to their divinity between the Father and the Son, and distinction in regards to their person. God is one God who eternally dwells in three persons. This is the Christian testimony. And so when you think about that, if God is one God, which is one divine nature, dwelling in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only things that we could talk about being greater or lesser would be a nature or a person. So what do the cults do? The cults say Jesus is speaking here of the Father's divine nature and saying that the Father's divine nature is greater than Jesus' divine nature. But if you're talking about one nature being greater than the other, then they can't possibly be equal because we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about their nature. And so what that would end up doing is mean that you have two beings, you have two gods, and you have one who's like almost God, but not quite, but enough, I guess, that you call him God. And then the other one, you also call God, but he's more God than the other God. Do you, do you see the issue? <laughs> so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's one of the ways that they will argue that the, the son is, yeah, he's special, he's even divine, but he's not as divine as the father. And Christians have rejected that. They've condemned that as heresy uh, from early, early in the church because we see that the son is equal to the father. In John chapter five, Jesus says, my father is working and I am working. And then John narrates for us that they wanted to pick up stones and kill him for just saying that because they understood Jesus to be making himself equal with God the Father. If Jesus is making himself equal with God the Father, then that means that their nature is equal. And so thus, they are co-divine. They are co-eternal. They are co-powerful. There, there's no power that the Father has that, you know, the Son does not have as well in regards to their, their nature. And, and so that's one way that you could do it. You could say, hey, Jesus is a lesser God, but the Christians have rejected that. 
But secondly, there's some Christian, oh, and I'll just throw one more. Another way you could handle this, this issue is just say, John doesn't know what he's doing. He's, you know, spirit of truth didn't lead him to write anything accurately, or Jesus was just lying and he's just making stuff up. And so there's a, there's a real contradiction here. Something can't be greater and also lesser, or, you know, something can't be greater and also equal at the same time in the same way. And so uh, you could just say it's a contradiction and leave it there. Uh, I think that's an atheist answer. So I don't want the atheist answer. I don't want the heretic's answer. I want Christian answer for this. Uh, and I want to give you two. So one is that we could speak of when Jesus says that the Father is greater than I, we have to keep in we have to remember that when, when the Son of God became flesh, just as Pastor Kenny mentioned in communion, he took on a human nature. And so what would be in comparison here and what would be saying one is greater than the other is not God's divine nature versus Jesus' divine nature, but it would be the Father's divine nature versus Jesus' human nature. Do you track with that? So it, because of the incarnation, the Father is greater than I. A lot of people hold that view. I respect that view. Um, it, it, one of the early bishops of, of, of Rome, Leo, wrote around 400 years after Jesus saying, quote, it is not of the same nature to say, I and the Father are, are one, and to say, the Father is greater than I. Going on, he says, when the only begotten son confesses himself less than the father, yet calls himself equal with him, he demonstrates the reality of both natures in himself so that the inequality proves the human nature and the equality, the divine. And so in other words, Jesus is not comparing father's divine nature and his divine nature that would create two gods. But what he is comparing is the father's divine nature and the son's human nature that he has taken on. And in that sense, the father is greater than him. That could be right. But I think there's another option, and I've seen cr that, that Christians have held historically that accounts for this. And this is the, the, the idea that when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, he's not speaking of the Father's nature being greater than him. So the only other thing that he could be speaking about is something that is unique about the Father's person. Remember, God is one God and three persons. And the one God is the nature, and the three persons is who they are. So if, if it's not the nature that's different, then there's something, the difference must lie in the persons. And this is exactly what we see when we think about the, the relationship of, of the father and the son. The father is the father of the son. The son is begotten of the father, right? Uh, and so there's a, unique in a uh, uniqueness and a distinction there. The father is said to be from no other person. But the Son is said to be from the Father. All that the Son has and is, is from the Father. Theologians have called this, or called this the doctrine of uh, the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, and Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff gives a short definition of this. He says, it is that eternal and necessary act of the first person in the Trinity, whereby he within the divine being is the ground of a second personal subsistence like his own and puts this second person in possession of the whole divine essence without any division, alienation, or change. One theologian also in the early church, Gregory Nazanzian, writes that the, the solution to this this statement of Jesus is, it, it can't possibly be that they have different natures. And so the solution, it re refers to what he says as 
origination. He says, while the equal belongs to the nature, the greater refers to the origination. This we acknowledge with, with much good will. And he'll go on and say, for the son to say that the father is greater than him in regards to his human nature is not really to say anything profound. That's an obvious statement. But to say that those who are co-equal in nature yet have some distinction in regards to their person, that is ineffable and profound and mysterious. And we can't even, like, your brain maybe feels broken right now. Imagine me trying to get to the place to just explain this, right? We don't have to understand it all. We never will. But this truth teaches us that at the exact same time, the Son is as much divine as the Father is divine, sharing the same nature, and yet the persons are distinct in that the Son is from the Father, the Father is from no one. How that all happens, I have no clue. (laughs) But you can't deny it. Because to deny it then would be to say that there's a time when when the Son was not. The Son has always existed and always been from the Father. It is the eternal generation or eternal begetting. There was never a time when the Son did not exist. If this begetting or generation occurred in time, then there would be a time when the Father didn't have the Son. And if you just think about that, if there's a time when the Father didn't have the Son, then you have to admit that there's a time when the Father wasn't the Father. Andreas Kostenberger and Scott Swain in their book, Father, Son, and Spirit, summarize the matter this way. They say, the Father is the, f- the, fount, the fountain of divinity. All that the Son and the Spirit have, they receive personally from the Father. The consubstantial deity of the Son and the Spirit with the Father is in no way diminished by the receptive status of the Son and the Spirit, for the Father shares with them all things, except for the personal trait of being Father. And so he says the point is not that the Father is the fountain of divinity generates the divinity of the Son and the Spirit. Divinity by definition cannot be generated. Nor do we claim that the unity of God is found only in the person of the Father. What then, since do we speak of as the Father is the fountain of divinity? Understanding this assertion requires a grasp on the dogmatic distinction between essence or nature and person. The Son and the Spirit, as concrete persons, are from the Father. The Father, in other words, is the font or the fountain of the persons who are divine. However, those persons with the Father fully possess the identical self-existence, underived, ungenerated, divine essence from the Father. In Johannine terms, he says, Jesus has life in himself. He is the self-existent, ungenerated God, and is God, this God as the Son who personally shares self-existence with the Father because he is the Son of the Father. Whew. That should be enough for you to chew on for a while. And me too. And again, we don't have to understand it exhaustively but we need to point to it clearly, preach it faithfully, delight in it daily, enjoy it eternally, sing of it weekly, defend it theologically, and cherish it personally. On the most practical level, it's this. There's one God, and you know him because he has revealed himself to you in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. 
The Father did not put on flesh. The Spirit did not put on flesh. The Son was alone, the one who put on flesh and was crucified. The Father was not poured out by the Son, but the Son and the Father poured out the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the one who became incarnate, but the Holy Spirit has always been a Spirit and stays a Spirit and then dwells in us as a Spirit in our hearts and makes us new and gives us life and forgiveness of sins. What a, what a joy we sing of these things and praise God for these things. So now you understand, maybe a little bit, why the disciples should rejoice that Jesus is going back to the Father. He, he came from the Father. He came into the world. He lived in the world through the Father, and now he's going back to the Father. All things are from him and through him and to him. And so when he has done all that the Father wishes him to do and wills him to do, he arrives back in the Father's bosom where he started to his great joy and delight. Incredible incredible. But there's more than that too. That great joy and delight will not only be enjoyed by the son, but the son says, Father, I desire that they too whom you've given me may be with me where I am and see my glory, which you have given to me. In other words, this is what Jesus is promising when he says, I'm going to prepare the place. I'm going to the Father's house. I'm coming again. I'm going to take you to bring you with me where I am. You're coming to the Father's house. So you know what's next. You know Jesus is going to the Father. You know that, that he's going to return and take you to the Father's house. And so you have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to fear death. You have no reason to go and be faithful and to live for Christ and to preach Christ because you know you know what's next. You can be of good courage. What happens if we die before he comes to take us to be with the Father? Paul says that when we are away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. And so you're either going to be alive when he returns and he takes you to the Father's house, or you have already died, but then upon death, you immediately went to the Father's house. Either way, what's next? The Father's house. All right, how do these things encourage us to remain faithful? <laughs> How's my time here? 50. All right. <laughs> I hope that you're encouraged already, but let me just try to summarize this and close this. We know what to do, church. We know what to do. That's why we should remain faithful even in trials, even in tribulations. We are to believe Jesus, we are to love Jesus, we are to keep his commands. 1 John 4, 3, 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So we know what to do. We believe Jesus we love one another, we keep his commandments, we build up the church, we share the gospel, we teach about Christ. We can't do any of that on our own though. This is why we have the Holy Spirit in us. We know who we have in us, so we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fear. Ephesians chapter one says that everyone who believes, says when they, when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And in uh, Ephesians uh, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, Paul says that Christians are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he goes and says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to Christ. 
So if any of you have professed Christ and you're saying, I follow Christ and I belong to Christ, there, there should be no doubt in your mind that you have his spirit dwelling in you, empowering you and teaching you, teaching you to confess Christ, teaching you to live for Christ, teaching you to love Christ. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. What's the point there? It's not that, that, that fake people could just utter those words. Of it's not talking about that. But all genuine faith in Jesus and true confessions of Jesus are the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So do you confess that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that he is the son who has come from God to save us from our sins? Then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, empowering you and teaching you. And this is, this, is, this is huge to help us fight sin, to help us walk by the Spirit, to help us to be filled with the, the fruit of the Spirit, to help us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and, and submit to one, or, uh, one another out of reverence for Christ. These are the things the Spirit produces in us. You may think, well, we're, we're waiting for Jesus to come back, but we don't, we don't have him here physically with us. So that can be discouraging. But if we have God's spirit in us, the scriptures say that Christ is dwelling in us by his spirit. And so he's with us. This is why Jesus could say, surely I am with you always to the very end of the earth in that personal way that he has given him his spirit. You may think, well, we've never physically seen Jesus. Jesus would say in John 20, when he appeared to the disciples, that Blessed are those who have not yet seen him and believe. So no, we didn't see the resurrection of Christ. We didn't walk with Christ in those three years. But if we believe in Christ, if we've heard the word of Christ preached to us and we believe, then we've been saved and we have the spirit and we also enjoy a special blessing for not having seen him and yet having believed him. And lastly, we should be encouraged while we wait for Jesus to return to bring us to the Father's home knowing that that is exactly where we will be next. What's next? It's the Father's house. Jesus coming to take us to be with him. Paul calls this being seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, waiting for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. In Philippians 3.20, the awaiting of our savior from heaven who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the, 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 the statement that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an angel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord therefore he says encourage one another with these words what's next for you if you're in Christ it's the father's house either he comes and brings you or you die and he calls you home. Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I stand. So don't be troubled. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Understand what to do. Understand who you have with you. Understand what's next and then live fearlessly in light of it, church. Christians are growing more and more hated by our culture. 
That's true. Yes, we are being tolerated less and less. Yes, we have all sorts of issues around us. We have, yes, we have sinful leaders. Yes, we have economic problems. Yes, we see nations at war. Yes, we, we hear of rumors of war. Yes, we have a generation of people who, who love themselves and are hard in their hearts. Yes, we have terrible things being done. Yes, we have injustices. Yes, we have sinners in leadership and, and political realms. Yes, to all of those things. Yes, we have lost neighbors. Oh, but yes, we have a mission field. Yes, we have a plentiful harvest. Yes, God wants everyone in our lives to know that we love him. Yes, we have the gospel. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have the helper. Yes, we have his power. Yes, we have his presence. Yes, we have his instruction. Yes, we have Christ. We have his promises. Yes, we have work to do. Yes, there are people who still have never heard. Yes, the gospel must go to the ends of the earth. Yes, he will save an innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue. Yes, that includes the South Bay. Yes, that includes the end of the earth. Yes, we may lose our lives. It may cost us everything. Yes, it will be worth it. Yes, we will be raised. Yes, we will be in the Father's house. And yes, we will reign with Christ forever. And no, none of this has taken Christ by surprise. And no, it shouldn't take any of us by surprise, for we are not alone. Amen, church? Father, bless your church. Empower them by your spirit to love your word, to study your word, to delight in your word, to preach your word, to sing your word, to make disciples by your word, and to be fearless and to be unafraid, knowing that you are with us wherever we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.